Section twenty nine of Rights of Man by Thomas Paine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England. Part second, chapter five Ways and Means of Improving the Condition of Europe. Part one of seven. In contemplating a subject that embraces with equatorial magnitude the whole region of humanity, it is impossible to confine the pursuit in one single direction. It takes ground on every character and condition that appertains to man, and blends the individual, the nation, and the world. From a small spark kindled in America, a flame has arisen not to be extinguished. Without consuming, like the ultima ratio regum, it winds its progress from nation to nation, and conquers by a silent operation. Man finds himself changed. He scarcely perceives how. He acquires a knowledge of his rights by attending justly to his interest, and discovers in the event that the strength and powers of despotism consist wholly in the fear of resisting it and that in order to be free it is sufficient that he wills it. Having in all the preceding parts of this work endeavoured to establish a system of principles as a basis on which governments ought to be erected, I shall proceed in this to the ways and means of rendering them into practice. But in order to introduce this part of the subject with more propriety and stronger effect, some preliminary observations deducible from or connected with those principles are necessary whatever the form or constitution of government may be it ought to have no other object than the general happiness when instead of this it operates to create and increase wretchedness in any of the parts of society it is on a wrong system and reformation is necessary customary language has classed the condition of man under the two descriptions of civilized and uncivilized life to the one it has ascribed felicity and affluence to the other hardship and want but however our imagination may be impressed by painting and comparison it is nevertheless true that a great portion of mankind in what are called civilized countries are in a state of poverty and wretchedness far below the condition of an indian i speak not of one country but of all it is so in england it is so all over europe let us inquire into the cause it lies not in any natural defect in the principles of civilization but in preventing those principles having a universal operation the consequence of which is a perpetual system of war and expense that drains the country and defeats the general felicity of which civilization is capable all the european governments france now excepted are constructed not on the principle of universal civilization but on the reverse of it so far as those governments relate to each other they are in the same condition as we conceive of savage uncivilized life they put themselves beyond the law as well of god as of man and are with respect to principle and reciprocal conduct like so many individuals in a state of nature 
the inhabitants of every country under the civilization of laws easily civilized together but governments being yet in an uncivilized state and almost continually at war they pervert the abundance which civilized life produces to carry on the uncivilized part to a greater extent by thus engrafting the barbarism of government upon the internal civilization of a country it draws from the latter and more especially from the poor a great portion of those earnings which should be applied to their own subsistence and comfort apart from all reflections of morality and philosophy it is a melancholy fact that more than one-fourth of the labour of mankind is annually consumed by this barbarous system what has served to continue this evil is the pecuniary advantage which all the governments of europe have found in keeping up this state of uncivilization it affords to them pretences for power and revenue for which there would be neither occasion nor apology if the circle of civilization were rendered complete civil government alone or the government of laws is not productive of pretences for many taxes it operates at home, directly under the eye of the country, and precludes the possibility of much imposition. But when the scene is laid in the uncivilized contention of governments, the field of pretenses is enlarged, and the country, being no longer a judge, is open to every imposition which governments please to act. Not a thirtieth, scarcely a fortieth, part of the taxes which are raised in england are either occasioned by or applied to the purpose of civil government it is not difficult to see that the whole which the actual government does in this respect is to enact laws and that the country administers and executes them at its own expense by means of magistrates juries sessions and assize over and above the taxes which it pays in this view of the case we have two distinct characters of government the one the civil government or the government of laws which operates at home the other the court or cabinet government which operates abroad on the rude plan of uncivilized life the one attended with little charge the other with boundless extravagance and so distinct are the two that if the latter were to sink as it were by a sudden opening of the earth and totally disappear the former would not be deranged it would still proceed because it is the common interest of the nation that it should and all the means are in practice revolutions then have for their object a change in the moral condition of governments and with this change the burthen of public taxes will lessen and civilization will be left to the enjoyment of that abundance of which it is now deprived in contemplating the whole of this subject i extend my views into the department of commerce in all my publications where the matter would admit i have been an advocate for commerce because i am a friend to its effects it is a pacific system operating to cordialize mankind by rendering nations as well as individuals useful to each other as to the mere theoretical reformation i have never preached it up the most effectual process is that of improving the condition of man by means of his interest and it is on this ground that i take my stand 
if commerce were permitted to act to the universal extent it is capable it would extirpate the system of war and produce a revolution in the uncivilized state of governments the invention of commerce has arisen since those governments began and is the greatest approach towards universal civilization that has yet been made by any means not immediately flowing from moral principles whatever has a tendency to promote the civil intercourse of nations by an exchange of benefits is a subject as worthy of philosophy as of politics commerce is no other than the traffic of two individuals multiplied on a scale of numbers and by the same rule that nature intended for the intercourse of two she intended that of all for this purpose she has distributed the materials of manufacturers and commerce in various and distant parts of a nation and of the world and as they cannot be procured by war so cheaply or so commodiously as by commerce she has rendered the latter the means of extirpating the former as the two are nearly the opposite of each other consequently the uncivilized state of the european governments is injurious to commerce every kind of destruction or embarrassment serves to lessen the quantity and it matters but little in what part of the commercial world the reduction begins like blood it cannot be taken from any of the parts without being taken from the whole mass in circulation and all partake of the loss when the ability in any nation to buy is destroyed it equally involves the seller could the government of england destroy the commerce of all other nations she would most effectually ruin her own it is possible that a nation may be the carrier for the world but she cannot be the merchant she cannot be the seller and buyer of her own merchandise the ability to buy must reside out of herself and therefore the prosperity of any commercial nation is regulated by the prosperity of the rest if they are poor she cannot be rich and her condition be what it may is an index of the height of the commercial tide in other nations that the principles of commerce and its universal operation may be understood without understanding the practice is a position that reason will not deny and it is on this ground only that i argue the subject it is one thing in the counting-house in the world it is another with respect to its operation it must necessarily be contemplated as a reciprocal thing that only one half its powers resides within the nation and that the whole is as effectually destroyed by the destroying the half that resides without as if the destruction had been committed on that which is within for neither can act without the other when in the last as well as in the former wars the commerce of england sunk it was because the quantity was lessened everywhere and it now rises because commerce is in a rising state in every nation if england at this day imports and exports more than at any former period the nations with which she trades must necessarily do the same her imports are their exports and vice versa there can be no such thing as a nation flourishing alone in commerce she can only participate and the destruction of it in any part must necessarily affect all 
when therefore governments are at war the attack is made upon a common stock of commerce and the consequence is the same as if each had attacked his own the present increase of commerce is not to be attributed to ministers or to any political contrivances but to its own natural operation in consequence of peace the regular markets had been destroyed the channels of trade broken up the high road of the seas infested with robbers of every nation and the attention of the world called to other objects those interruptions have ceased and peace has restored the deranged condition of things to their proper order it is worth remarking that every nation reckons the balance of trade in its own favour and therefore something must be irregular in the common ideas upon this subject the fact however is true according to what is called a balance and it is from this cause that commerce is universally supported every nation feels the advantage or it would abandon the practice but the deception lies in the mode of making up the accounts and in attributing what are called profits to a wrong cause mr pitt has sometimes amused himself by showing what he called a balance of trade from the custom-house books this mode of calculating not only affords no rule that is true but one that is false in the first place every cargo that departs from the custom-house appears on the books as an export and according to the custom-house balance the losses at sea and by foreign failures are all reckoned on the side of profit because they appear as exports secondly because the importation by the smuggling trade does not appear on the custom-house books to arrange against the exports no balance therefore as applying to superior advantages can be drawn from these documents and if we examine the natural operation of commerce the idea is fallacious and if true would soon be injurious the great support of commerce consists in the balance being a level of benefits among all nations two merchants of different nations trading together will both become rich and each makes the balance in his own favour consequently they do not get rich of each other and it is the same with respect to the nations in which they reside the case must be that each nation must get rich out of its own means and increases that riches by something which it procures from another in exchange if a merchant in england sends an article of english manufacture abroad which costs him a shilling at home and imports something which sells for two he makes a balance of one shilling in his favour but this is not gained out of the foreign nation or the foreign merchant for he also does the same by the articles he receives and neither has the advantage upon the other the original value of the two articles in their proper countries was but two shillings but by changing their places they acquire a new idea of value equal to double what they had first and that increased value is equally divided there is no otherwise a balance on foreign than on domestic commerce the merchants of london and newcastle trade on the same principles as if they resided in different nations and make their balances in the same manner yet london does not get rich out of newcastle any more than newcastle out of london but 
coals the merchandise of newcastle have an additional value at london and london merchandise has the same at newcastle though the principle of all commerce is the same the domestic in a national view is the part the most beneficial because the whole of the advantages on both sides rests within the nation whereas in foreign commerce it is only a participation of one half the most unprofitable of all commerce is that connected with foreign dominion to a few individuals it may be beneficial merely because it is commerce but to the nation it is a loss the expense of maintaining dominion more than absorbs the profits of any trade it does not increase the general quantity in the world but operates to lessen it and as a greater mass would be afloat by relinquishing dominion the participation without the expense would be more valuable than a greater quantity with it but it is impossible to engross commerce by dominion and therefore it is still more fallacious it cannot exist in confined channels and necessarily breaks out by regular or irregular means that defeat the attempt and to succeed would be still worse france since the revolution has been more indifferent as to foreign possessions and other nations will become the same when they investigate the subject with respect to commerce to the expense of dominion is to be added that of navies and when the amounts of the two are subtracted from the profits of commerce it will appear that what is called the balance of trade even admitting it to exist is not enjoyed by the nation but absorbed by the government the idea of having navies for the protection of commerce is delusive it is putting means of destruction for the means of protection commerce needs no other protection than the reciprocal interests which every nation feels in supporting it it is common stock it exists by a balance of advantages to all and the only interruption it meets is from the present uncivilized state of governments and which it is its common interest to reform quitting this subject i now proceed to other matters as it is necessary to include england in the prospect of a general reformation it is proper to inquire into the defects of its government it is only by each nation reforming its own that the whole can be improved and the full benefit of reformation enjoyed only partial advantages can flow from partial reforms france and england are the only two countries in europe where a reformation in government could have successfully begun the one secure by the ocean and the other by the immensity of its internal strength could defy the malignancy of foreign despotism but it is with revolutions as with commerce the advantages increase by their becoming general and double to either what each would receive alone as a new system is now opening to the view of the world the european courts are plotting to counteract it alliances contrary to all former systems are agitating and a common interest of courts is forming against the common interest of man this combination draws a line that runs throughout europe and presents a cause so entirely new as to exclude all calculations from former circumstances while despotism warred with despotism man had no interest in the contest but in a cause that unites the soldier with the citizen and nation with nation 
the despotism of courts though it feels the danger and meditates revenge is afraid to strike no question has arisen within the records of history that pressed with the importance of the present it is not whether this or that party shall be in or not or whig or tory high or low shall prevail but whether man shall inherit his rights and universal civilization take place whether the fruits of his labours shall be enjoyed by himself or consumed by the profligacy of governments whether robbery shall be banished from courts and wretchedness from countries when in countries that are called civilized we see age going to the workhouse and youth to the gallows something must be wrong in the system of government it would seem by the exterior appearance of such countries that all was happiness but there lies hidden from the eye of common observation a mass of wretchedness that has scarcely any other chance than to expire in poverty or infamy its entrance into life is marked with the presage of its fate and until this is remedied it is in vain to punish civil government does not exist in executions but in making such provision for the instruction of youth and the support of age as to exclude as much as possible profligacy from the one and despair from the other instead of this the resources of a country are lavished upon kings upon courts upon hirelings impostors and prostitutes and even the poor themselves with all their wants upon them are compelled to support the fraud that oppresses them why is it that scarcely any are executed but the poor the fact is a proof among other things of a wretchedness in their condition bred up without morals and cast upon the world without a prospect they are the exposed sacrifice of vice and legal barbarity the millions that are superfluously wasted upon governments are more than sufficient to reform those evils and to benefit the condition of every man in a nation not included within the purlieus of a court this i hope to make appear in the progress of this work it is the nature of compassion to associate with misfortune in taking up this subject i seek no recompense i fear no consequence fortified with that proud integrity that disdains to triumph or to yield i will advocate the rights of man it is to my advantage that i have served an apprenticeship to life i know the value of moral instruction and i have seen the danger of the contrary at an early period little more than sixteen years of age raw and adventurous and heated with the false heroism of a master who had served in a man of war i began the carver of my own fortune and entered on board the terrible privateer captain death from this adventure i was happily prevented by the affectionate and moral remonstrance of a good father who from his own habits of life being of the quaker profession must begin to look upon me as lost but the impression much as it affected at the time began to wear away and i entered afterwards in the king of prussia privateer captain mendez and went with her to sea yet from such a beginning and with all the inconvenience of early life against me i am proud to say that with a perseverance undismayed by difficulties a disinterestedness that compelled respect i have not only contributed to raise a new empire in the world 
founded on a new system of government, but I have arrived at an eminence in political literature, the most difficult of all lines to succeed and excel in, which aristocracy with all its aid has not been able to reach or to rival. End of Part Second Chapter Five Ways and Means of Improving the Condition of Europe Part One of Seven Read by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England